It's great to be here. Thank you, band. Uh, can you guys give a round of applause for the worship band? That it was great. Um, and also, thank you guys for being here. It's, uh, it's your Tuesday night, and you've chosen to be here, so thank you. Um, I'm going to take off my watch so that I can keep track of time. And um, mm, let me stop it so it doesn't slide. Okay, good. So we're starting at 15 after. I've been told I have 30 minutes. What you're going to need is that bulletin or that handout and a pen. And what I'm going to do is cover as much ground as possible. I'm going to open up in prayer, and then I'm going to get started. And let me just tell you from the outset what I'm doing and my strategy for tonight so you have a little bit of information about where we're going. Um, you guys are doing a series called God Is, and I'm filling in the blank with God Is Real. Last week, I think you did God Is Holy. Is that right? Anyone want to confirm that? Great. Let me just, as a word of uh, support for all the great work that Cody is doing, because Cody's an amazing guy, um, let me just encourage you, whatever they do, just show up and be a part of it, because uh, it's all good stuff, and especially those small groups. That's really important, um, really important for your growth in the Lord. What I'm going to do tonight is argue that God is real. I'm going to lay out a lot of different stuff. Some of it might resonate, other stuff might not. A lot of that just depends on how you're wired and the kind of person you are. I won't stop for questions just because I've got a certain amount of time that I've got to get through a lot of information. I will stick around afterwards and talk. My strategy tonight is to treat you, A, like you're an adult, and B, like you're smart. Because you either are, are smart and... Uh, or, or you can become smart. That's the beautiful thing about intelligence. It's not like etched in stone. Actually, there's a lot of studies done on the ability of people to become smart. So I want you to maybe challenge yourself tonight and really focus in. Give me 30 minutes and pay attention, and we're going to cover a lot of material. Let me, let me start in prayer, and then we'll get going. Father, I pray for uh, myself that you would give me your spirit and guidance to recall what I've studied to say the things that would be encouraging, to say that which is true. Um, God, I pray for the hearers, that you'd give them grace to listen, um, give them minds to capture what's being taught in a way that would bear fruit in their life for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So I'm going to be arguing that God is real. Now, when we say something is real, what we mean is that it exists in reality and not just in the imagination. And that's a little tricky because there are things that are in the imagination which seem very real, but in fact are not real. For many of you, perhaps like Harry Potter is a very real person, uh, but in fact, in reality, he's not real. There is this line between reality and imagination. And when I say that I'm arguing God is real, what I mean is that God actually exists in reality and not just in the imagination. Um, there's a quote that I think we're going to start out with tonight, and this will set the stage. This is by C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. And he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that, in a nutshell, is what I'm trying to communicate to you tonight. Through various arguments, is that you were made, ultimately, for another world. And that's the reason why nothing in this world just can't quite satisfy the itch, the longing, the desire, call it what you will. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity 
in the hearts of man. Calvin says, in your bones, in your inner person, is a desire for something this world cannot fulfill. And so what I'm going to be arguing is that you were made for another world precisely because God is real. Now, there is an epidemic of imaginelessness. I don't know that that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Imaginelessness. Um, probably the most important person in the history of philosophy is a guy named Plato. Anybody studied Plato in here? Republic, stuff like that. If you want to summarize Plato's philosophy, you can leave here tonight and get, go talk to your dorm mates and say, hey, you know, I was thinking about Plato's philosophy and maybe score some points with them. <laughs> Plato, in a nutshell, basically believed there is more to life than meets the eye. More to life than meets the eye. And all I'm asking you to do tonight is to consider the fact that you are made for something else and that there is more to life than meets the eye. Don't be one of these people that confines the world to just what you can see, touch, taste, feel, because I don't think that works, and I don't think it's fulfilling. And I think that we see an epidemic of imaginelessness, people that are unwilling to close their eyes and imagine a world that is better and bigger and eternal and all the things we wish this world was. Isaiah 43, 7 says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, God is talking about you. So this is where you're from, and this is what you're for. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. This is where you're from. You're like, I know my mom and dad. I think I know where I'm from. No, I'm talking beyond that. I'm talking about the fact that in the, at the end of the 90s, scientists mapped the first human genome. You might have probably heard about this. Bill Clinton announced it probably around the time most of you were born. It cost almost $3 billion to map the human genome. And the genome is just the sum total of your DNA. And if you were to fill up a computer with all the information that is contained in your DNA, it would include 150 zettabytes. Zettabytes, not bits, not bytes, not terabytes, not megabytes, not gigabytes, not palabytes, exabytes, but zettabytes. That's how much information is contained in you. 150 zettabytes of information are contained in your cells. Wow. And that information is coded. It's language. It's A, G, C, and T. And that's what you're made up of. By the way, if you're interested, by 2025, we estimate that the internet will have a total of 160 zettabytes of information. You, you have 150 zettabytes of information. So when you look in the mirror tonight, whatever you think is wrong with you, I want you to remember, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And perhaps one of the greatest arguments for God's existence is just the information contained in your cell to make you who you are and do what you do. So where are you from? You're from God. What are you for? You're for God. You exist for God. You exist for his glory. You exist to know him and to be known by him. I'll get back to that. That's the most important thing. The biggest question tonight is not whether you know God. The most important question is, does God know you? Okay, so what do we mean by God? What do we mean by God? Well, what we mean by God, if you've taken philosophy, you know that the Greeks like to talk about God as the greatest conceivable being. 
the GCB, the greatest conceivable being. Now, this is really important because Freud came along and said, well, the idea of God is just wish fulfillment. We just want there to be a God. It's just wish fulfillment. Now, this is really important that we understand what Freud is claiming. Freud is claiming that we as human beings, that there is no such thing as God. It's just that we want there to be a God. Anybody in here ever go to the great musical Oklahoma? Let me ask this again. Uh, anyone in here ever see the play Oklahoma? Okay, a few of you. Anybody ever been in the musical Oklahoma? Okay, great. What character? Okay. Well, there's this scene at the beginning of Oklahoma. Hugh Jackman's in it. You should Google or YouTube it. It's, it's on YouTube. There's this scene at the beginning of Oklahoma where there's this cowboy talking to this girl that he likes. And he says to her, I'm going to take you out in this, in this, uh, in this, in this uh, wagon. And he says, I'm going to take you out in the wagon, and it's going to have leather, and it's going to have fringe, and it's going to have two white horses. And he's describing this amazing wagon and this time they'll have together. And then she says to him, well, I wouldn't even go with you. And he says, well, well I wouldn't even take you, and I don't even have that wagon. And she says, you went out and bought a wagon, and you have no one to go with, it, go with you? And, she's, and he says, no, I made the whole thing up. And she gets mad, and he gets mad, and they walk apart. And then he turns to her, and he walks over, and he says, now pay attention to this. He says, but wouldn't it be great if I had that wagon? Wouldn't it be great if it existed? Now, I want to talk for a moment about that question, because you might talk to someone who says they don't believe in God. First question to ask, what is it you don't believe in? What are you talking about when you say you don't believe in God? You'll find a lot of people deny the existence of God. They don't really even have a definition of God, but you do. God is the greatest conceivable being. What that means is that God possesses all the qualities that would make a being great. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-present. Everything that makes a being great and nothing that detracts from a being, that's God. God doesn't just exist. He is the ground of all existence, okay? Now, here's what's interesting about that Oklahoma story that I told. If you're talking to someone and they say, I don't believe in God, first step, define God. Second step, ask them this question. Wouldn't, be not, wouldn't it be great if God did exist? Now, that's an interesting question to ask someone. Now, you say that God doesn't exist, but if you understand God to be the kind of being I understand him to be, then wouldn't it be great if there was a being who created you, who knows you, who loves you, who protects you, who provides for you, whose desire is for you to delight eternally in him, wouldn't that be nice? I'm not arguing at this point that he exists. I'm just asking you the question. If you understand who God is, wouldn't you like it if God did exist? You see, Freud says it's a negative thing that God would be wish fulfillment. I want to put it a different way. What's wrong with wanting God to exist? I think that that's actually a powerful place to start the conversation. Interestingly enough, somewhere around 86% of the world's population today, tonight, believes in the existence of God. And so if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God, they are an outlier. They are someone who's out of step with the norm globally. Historically, the majority of people have believed in God. And we're going to get back to that fact, but I want you to remember that. 86% of the world's population, roughly, believes in the existence of a greatest conceivable being. Well, the Bible says that we're made in God's image. 
This is Latin for this is imago Dei. We are made in God's image. And this is why humans are self-reflective and creative and self-aware. And this is why humans are fundamentally different than animals. This is why we value human life above animal life. Not that animal life is valueless. It's just that human life is more value, valuable because we're made in God's image. And so not only are we from God and for God, but we bear in our bodies a spark of the divine. Not that we are God, not that we are divine, but we're made in God's image. I don't know if you've ever seen um, images of cathedrals in Europe after World War II. You can, again, Google this. There are all these great images of cathedrals in Europe after World War II, and they're bombed out, but you can still tell their greatness. You can still see that they had these huge spires and these amazing arches, and they are rubble, but they're still beautiful. They're bombed out, but there's something glorious about them. That's you. That's me. We are made in God's image. There is something great about us, yet sin has affected us. There's something wretched broken about us. Humanity is beauty and barbed wire. It's beauty and bombs. That's us. We're made in God's image, and yet we're cratered by the impact of sin. Blaise Pascal, I've talked about him before. Blaise Pascal was a famous philosopher in Europe, and Blaise Pascal argued that humans are great and wretched. And look, whatever you believe tonight about God or world or anything else, you have to account for two things. Humans are capable of great good and great evil. And the Bible tells us why we're capable of great good, because we're made in God's image. And also why we're capable of great evil, because we're fallen, because we're sinners. Psalm 8, in Psalm 8, David uh, is looking up at the stars. I don't know if we have this, but um, do we have Psalm 8 on the slide? That's okay. You can read it tonight. It'll be devotional for you. David is a shepherd. He's out looking at the stars. It's one of the stargazer psalms. Anybody in here ever been out like dark, dark, Milky Way kind of thing? I did some camp. I did a five-day backpacking trip up in the Trinity Alps this summer. And one night, it was just no moon, just beautiful, nothing but stars. And Psalm 8 came to mind because David's looking at the stars. And David asks a question. David says, what is man? What is man? What are you? Are you just a flesh sack of chemicals and water? Is that all you are? If you listen to naturalism, that's all you are. You are just the sum total of your biological composite material. And the Bible says you are more than that. You're worth more than that. What's most interesting about you is not anything anyone can see on Facebook or Twitter. It's actually this invisible substance called the soul. And the soul is what makes you the same person you were when you were a little kid. And it's what will make you the same person when you're an old person, Lord willing, you make it that far. It's the thing that makes you you, even though what you see in the mirror is constantly changing. Your cells are constantly regenerating. So you are made in God's image. And the Bible tells us what we most want to know. What are we? And people have all kinds of things that they turn to to try to figure out who they are. Astrology, phrenology. Anybody studied phrenology in here in any of your like sociology or psychology classes? Phrenology is what they used to do in the 19th century. I won't call on you to like tell us what it is, don't worry. It's always dangerous when you raise your hand. You're like, oh, please don't, don't call on me. Phrenology back in the 19th century and early 20th century, people played a lot of money to have somebody feel the bumps on your skull and tell you about you. You say, well, we're beyond that. Oh, really? How many people read their horoscope? 
How many people take some kind of personality test to find out what color or what combination of letters or whether you're blue or gold or green and none of that has any scientific validity and yet people take those tests. Why? Because you want to know about you. 23andMe genetic tests. People turn every which way to try to figure out what makes you you. And the Bible says, well, here's, here it is. You're made in God's image. That's what's most interesting about you. Okay, so God is real. We come from God. We're going to be with God. We exist to bear his image. You know a little bit about that now. Well, what arguments are there for that God exists? What arguments are there that God exists? Well, there's a couple. I've given you a few. There's the argument from the idea of God, Anselm of Canterbury. Canterbury's in England. Back in the 11th century, this guy named Anselm came up with something called the ontological argument. Now, you're smart. I told you at this at the beginning. You're smarter than you think, so you can get this. Just pay attention to this for a second. Anselm said, God is by definition the greatest conceivable being. Remember I said that? The greatest conceivable being possesses everything that would make a being great, okay? And so if you talk about God, you talk about the fact that he's all good, all knowing, all perfect, and you have in your mind the idea of a perfect being, don't you? Do you have that in your mind? You understand it. Okay. So now you ask the question, well, does he exist? And the answer, you've already answered the question, by the way, because you already understand that God is by definition the greatest conceivable being. And the greatest conceivable being by definition exists. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the greatest conceivable being. Because it's better to exist than not to exist. And don't say you don't believe that because you're here tonight. You're here tonight. And you're here tonight and you keep living and you keep persisting because you know existence is better than non-existence. And if God is by definition the greatest conceivable being, then a priori, by logic, by the laws of logic, God exists. You know, ever play chess? You know what checkmate is? Checkmate's when you got somebody, even if they don't know it, they, that you got them. I'm not very good at chess. I hear people say checkmate to me a lot. <laughs> well, if you're talking to somebody and they're willing to agree, okay, I understand by definition God is the greatest conceivable being, checkmate. Then by definition, he exists. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the greatest conceivable being. That's Anselm's argument. That's the 11th century. By the way, that's still around today. There are vastly more complicated versions of that argument. You can look it up. Argument number two, argument from game theory. Anybody like to play video games in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Of course, everybody in here likes to play video games. <laughs> I told you, I have four kids. I'm constantly saying, get off the computer, stop playing video games, okay? Game theory, modern game theory, modern gambling theory dates back to Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal developed a theory about belief in God. He said, belief in God is like gambling, which sounds bad, but it's not. <laughs> because everybody in here has to place a bet. And you have to place a bet in regards to the very things I'm talking about. Do you have a soul or not? Is there a God or not? Does anything happen after you die or not? You have to wager on those questions, but you have to wager with your life and with your soul, if you have one, if in fact you do. And Pascal says this, if you believe that there's a God and you turn out to be wrong, like, I'm not going to take a poll, but let's say all of those of us who believe in God, we die tonight and turns out there's no God. You know what we get? Exactly what everybody else gets. We cease to exist. We don't even know that we were wrong. And if you're right, you don't even have the benefit of like gloating and looking at Christians and saying, I told you you were wrong because we just cease to exist. If in fact you believe in God doesn't exist. Now, what have you lost? I mean, again, it's gaming theory. 
And if you're going to game or if you're going to gamble, you've got you've to you've sort of adjudicate risk and reward. What's the risk? Well, you lose out on some things in this life. I mean, let's just be honest. There might be some things that might have been temporarily fun that you would have otherwise done had you not believed in God. And then you die and you find out God doesn't exist. I guess you just cease to exist. So what have you lost? A little bit. What have you gained? Nothing. Now let's say you believe in God and it turns out God does exist. What have you lost? A little bit. You lost out of maybe a little bit of temporary fun on earth. What have you gained? Eternal reward. Infinite joy. Infinite glory. That's what you've gained. What did you risk? A little bit. What did you gain? Everything. What if somebody said, hey, we've got a lottery, a little raffle. Have you guys ever been to like a baseball game and they do raffle? Imagine somebody says, hey, we're doing a raffle. You can win this car. It costs a quarter and we're only selling two tickets. Who wouldn't buy a ticket? <laughs> Small risk, great reward. Pascal says, what if you don't believe in God? If you don't believe in God and doesn't, God doesn't exist, maybe you got to go to a few additional parties, have a little more sex, maybe try some drugs. Whatever you wouldn't have done if God exists, now you do. Maybe that's good for you. Arguably, it's not even good for you. And then you die, and what do you get? Same as everything else, everybody else. You cease to exist. But what if you believe God doesn't exist, and you die, and you find out you're wrong? You've gained a little, and you've lost a lot. Infinite sorrow infinite judgment. It's not a pretty picture. Read the Bible. Pascal says, don't be stupid. Bet on God. So that's a second argument. A third argument. I know I'm going fast. An argument for morality. Okay, now listen, if you're the kind of person that believes that there are certain things that are just wrong, universally, absolute moral truth. If you're the kind of person that believes no matter when you live or where you live, it's wrong for a person to enslave another person, then you believe in what's called moral absolutes. And if moral absolutes exist, then something absolute has to cause their existence. Only God can cause moral absolutes. Therefore, God exists. So there's an argument for moral absolutes to God. Now, let's say you say, well, if God didn't exist, then we would be moral relativists. And things wouldn't necessarily be wrong. They would just be sort of relatively wrong. Well, if God doesn't exist, if God doesn't exist then moral relativism is true. But you and I both know that moral relativism is not true. Therefore, God exists. So well, you live in a generation where people have moral outrage about a lot of different things. I'm not even going to list them. There are a million things people your age are outraged about. Here's the question. Why be angry? Why be angry? I mean, if there is no God, if there is no punishment, Plato asked the question this way in his, his myth of Gyges. He says, why be moral? If there's no punishment, why be moral? There's an interesting sociological question that people ask. Would you rather be invisible or would you rather be able to fly? Don't answer this. Don't answer this. Would you rather be invisible or would you rather be able to fly? And what sociologists find is that people that want to fly want to fly because they want to do noble things. And people that want to be invisible want to be invisible for bad reasons. And you know why they want to be invisible? Because if you're invisible, you don't get caught. And if you don't ever get caught, why be good? So if you believe in morality, if you believe there is moral truth, if you believe in moral absolutes, that is an argument for God's existence. So if you're talking to someone who has a bumper sticker expressing moral outrage, look at them and say, cool, you must believe in God. And if they say, no, I don't, then ask them this question in all seriousness, then why be outraged? Why be angry? Okay, next argument, argument from the resurrection. All right, look, there is 
I'm not even going to argue from the Bible. Just let's say you never read the Bible. If you looked at ancient historians like Tacitus and Josephus, there are extra, extra biblical, non-biblical historical evidence that early Christians and non-Christians believed that the teaching of Christianity from the very beginning has been this belief that Jesus died and rose again. And if that happened, you have to come up with an explanation. What happened to the body of Jesus? And the explanation that most makes sense is that he actually came back from the dead. Because his disciples didn't have the ability or the motive to steal his body. The Romans didn't have the motive to steal his body. Why would they want to fan the flames of a Jewish sect that undermined stability? And the Jews didn't have a motive. And they didn't have the, reason, the means because the tomb was guarded. So the resurrection is an argument for God's existence. Morality is an argument for God's existence. Game theory is an argument for God's existence. The very idea of God itself is an argument for God's existence. 1 Corinthians 15, three through six, let me read this regarding the resurrection. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So don't buy into the myth that Christians evolved the idea of resurrection. The idea of resurrection has been at the very beginning of the religion. Why? Because they actually saw a person come back to life. You say, that's crazy. It's only crazy if there's no God. But if there is a God then you can believe something like the resurrection. And in fact, the resurrection would itself be proof that there is a God. All right, there's also an argument from the Bible. A lot of times people want to know, well, I know the Bible talks about God, but how accurate is the Bible? Well, let's just talk about the New Testament for a moment. There are over 24,000 manuscripts, Greek, Syrian, Coptic, multi-language manuscripts of the New Testament. So if you're wondering, does the book I have at my dorm room, is it actually the book that was written back in the beginning? The answer is yes. If you just want to talk Greek manuscripts, there are over 8,000 Greek manuscripts, just Greek manuscripts. You compare that to like the writings of Plato, there are maybe seven. So the, the manuscript evidence for the Bible is overwhelming. Second Peter 1.21, this should be on the, uh, it's in your notes. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through humans spoke to God, from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So those are arguments for God's existence. The reliability of scripture, the nature of God, the wager, morality, um, these are all the resurrection. These are all arguments for God's existence. Now, let me ask a question and then I'm going to answer it. Do you need an argument for God's existence? Do, do I think you need an argument for God's existence to be rational? This might surprise you. So I just gave you a bunch of arguments. The answer is no, I don't. Calvin, I think this is in your notes. Calvin talks about something called the census divinitatis. Some things are just evident to the senses. Like, if I were to say to you, hey, how do you know that you have a piece of paper in your hand? I think you'd go, like, I sense it. I sense it. Anybody remember what percentage of the world believes in God? 86%. Good. I told you you were smart. 86% of the world's population believes in God. And Calvin says, your knowledge of God is like your knowledge of paper. It's a kind of sense. You guys ever watch Spider-Man? Spider-Man has spider sense. 
Calvin says you are created with a sense of the divine. The fancy term for that is sensus divinitatis. What that means is you are created to sense the existence of God. Not from an argument, although there are arguments. And not just by reason, although it is reasonable. You are created to sense the presence of God. Now, this is why when you talk to people and you say, hey, how did you come to believe in God? Oftentimes, they'll say something like, I felt God was with me. I sensed that God was presence. I could feel God's presence. Well, what does that mean to feel the presence of an invisible being? I don't know, but I do. Calvin says, that's the sensus divinitatis. Now, here's what's interesting. Let's talk about a different kind of sense. Let's talk about the ability to see color. Did you know that there are about as many people on the globe tonight that cannot sense color as there are that cannot sense the presence of God? They are atheists. There are about as many atheists as there are colorblind people in the world tonight. Now imagine somebody said to you, somebody who couldn't sense color, I don't believe in color because I can't see any color. You'd say to them, I know you can't see color. But most of us can. And the problem might not be with color. The problem might actually be with your senses. What I want to suggest to you tonight, those of you who believe in God, those of you who sense his presence, those of you who have long sensed his presence, if someone treats you like there's something wrong with you because you believe in God, 86% of the world believes in God, I want you to say to them, you know, perhaps the problem is not with me. Perhaps the problem is with you. Because the reality is, if God created us, like the Bible says, if God created us for him, like the Bible says, if the Bible created us in his image, like the Bible says, it stands to reason that there would be this sixth sense, this sense of the divine. And perhaps the problem, the fact that some people don't sense God's presence, is not so much a negative statement about God as it is about us and about our unbelief. All right, Kierkegaard, let me quote one last uh, existential philosopher. Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, he said this, faith sees best in the dark. It's on your paper. Faith sees best in the dark. So listen, let me just say for a moment, I, I want you tonight, whether one of these arguments makes sense or more than one of them makes sense or many of them or all of them, wow, that would be great, or none of them. What do you do? What do you do if you say, you know what, I don't buy any of these arguments. Kierkegaard says, and Blaise Pascal says, you should still believe. Pascal says, well, you should believe because it makes sense in terms of a bet. Kierkegaard says, look, faith, the nature of faith is to believe things you can't see. The Bible even talks about that. Faith is the substance of things not seen. And so if you're here tonight and you're in the dark, Kierkegaard says, faith shines in the dark. Faith sees best when it's in the dark. Well, the question I want to ask tonight is, what's keeping you from entrusting yourself to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Remember, I started out tonight by saying that what matters most is not whether you know God. What matters most is, does God know you? You see, when we treat God like we're the judge and he's on trial, we've got it backwards. God's the judge. He's not on trial. We're not his jury. He exists. He created us. He's given us plenty of reasons to understand that he exists. If there's a problem, it's with us, not with him. My question to you tonight is, what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus Christ? I want to make a bet, and I'm not going to put any money down, so don't come collecting anything from me. 
But I want to bet that your, that your problem with God is not intellectual. It's spiritual. Maybe there's something in your life you don't want to give up. Maybe there's some sin you don't want to confess. Maybe there's something about your life you like it as it is. And what's keeping you from God on the face of it is some intellectual argument. I'm willing to bet it's not. I'm willing to bet that it's spiritual. And I just want to encourage you that when you die, there is a God. You will face God because you do have a soul. And what will matter on that day is not whether or not you believed in God. It's whether or not God knew you, whether or not you put your faith in God. These are some arguments that help you have good reason to believe. But I want to encourage you tonight, whether you've done it before or whether you need to recommit your life, I think we close in some singing. I want you to really ask that question of yourself before God. What's keeping me from putting my faith in Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. I thank you, Father, that you've given us minds to think. I thank you that you've given each student in this room your image. And God, despite how they wish to run away from you, you are just pursuing them tonight. And you won't give up. Father, I pray that tonight would be the night when they give themselves to you. When they submit, when they stop running and say, I want to know God and I want to be known by God. Father, I, I pray that each person would ponder the idea of your greatness and just think to themselves, wouldn't it be great if that being did exist? And what's keeping me from trusting what the Bible says? Father, I pray that you'd work in hearts tonight for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.